Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Varm Blog. And today we are talking about Francis Fukuyama and something that I'm going to call the crisis of the crisis of liberalism after one of my favorite Umberto Eco essays, The Crisis of the Crisis of Reason. Um, and that's because, as we talked about in our discussions of early Christopher Lash, we've been talking about the crisis of liberalism in some sense, since the 1960s, although the right-wing crisis of liberalism that we're seeing today is also somewhat new. Um, And then we can talk about, you know, the long end of history, which even Fukuyama himself can't decide if it's happening. So I've read many updates on it. uh, There was Fukuyama's turn against the end of history at the end of the war on terror, where he also left the Republican Party and turned against his neoconservative friends. And then, oh, about four years ago, he even started talking about the need for, like, democratic socialism, by which he sounded like he meant something between, like, European social democracy and Fordism, actually, not socialism as classically understood. Uh, and then about a year ago, he, he's not turned against that call for, you know, uh, a, a kind of more robust warefare state, but he's been talking about like, well, the, the end of history still seems pretty ended after all. Um, which led me to, to ask you and talk about it. Cause I am not a Fukuyama defender of the book. Everyone hates, but I've also pointed out that they don't seem to have read that book. Um, that Fukuyama is an interesting sort of, particularly in that book, conservative Hegelian who occasionally annoyingly pulls out a bunch of concepts from ancient Greek and misapplies them um, and uses them in ways to obscure his argument. But there's also a lot of useful information in that book. And nor is he saying that the end of history a la the 80s in Japan is a unilateral good thing the way a lot of people seem to have read it. So you, we were talking about subjects on this crisis of liberals and stuff. And you mentioned we should talk about Fukuyama. And so I wanted to start us off with that context. That, um there really hasn't been a real competitor to we'll call it post neoliberal liberalism um, in the United States or frankly in Europe. Um, 
even when like you know the national conservatives might win a country uh, like Maloney and and Italy to a lesser degree because it's actually been more thorough Orban in Hungary are Eldragon and Turkey they haven't really actually posed a serious threat to the economic order at all um, nor have even when they've adopted fairly conservative social policies those social policies actually resulted in what they wanted so where do you see us now and why do you think it's important for us to kind of give Fukuyama a fair hearing? So I think that uh, the reason Fukuyama remains important is because, as you say, no substantive challenge has arisen since the end of the Cold War that seriously threatens the ideal of liberal democracy as the probable uh dominant system worldwide, and especially um, the capitalistic element of liberal democracy. Um, I think Fukuyama's uh, argument distinguishes very forcefully between a historical and a post-historical world. And um, in the post-historical world, especially as you've mentioned, there hasn't been any challenge in what we call the historical world, um, which is the world that has not yet culminated in liberal democracy, liberal democracy is certainly not dominant. Um, I'm not like totally sure I agree with Fukuyama's argument to be very clear to everyone here. Uh, I don't. I think that predicting the end of history at any point is usually a bad call because if there's one thing you can bet on, it's that not only will events keep happening, but new problems will arise and uh, the long sweep of history demonstrates that nothing sticks around for long. But at the same time, I think that the reason why we're still arguing about this book 30 years after its publication is that within the shorter sweep of history, recent history, there's been nothing that substantially challenges it, despite many people's desire for a substantive challenge to arise. And in fact, uh, liberalism in some form or another has limped through several major challenges to its hegemony and emerged relatively intact, if under continuing duress. I think that's a that's fair point. One thing I would I would actually kind of ask us to think about, I've been reading Wayman Goyce's uh, how, how Not to Be a Liberal. Um, and one of the things that he points out is that movements that are fully substantive, like liberalism, Christianity, uh, he, he, he lists a bunch of them, but he gets this from Nietzsche. He's like, you can't really pin them down in definition, which is part of why it's hard to see them when they come and go away. Like when we think about liberalism, okay, we know that it comes from the European Enlightenment. But unless you're one of those, frankly, revanchist people who thinks that we can just have John Locke again, um, and that that's just a set of ideals to which bourgeois society, you know, tasks the world, um, 
you have to ask yourself, well, that's clearly not the world that we currently have, nor frankly, did we ever have like that is like a mythic origin story of the origins of liberalism. But even in the case of the, of the United States and France, that's not the dominant actual order and it never has been. Mm -hmm. So, so I guess the first thing we have to, to ask ourselves is what history in the, in the quote liberal world didn't end. I mean, or did end, you know, what does he mean by this? And I know he's following a particular argument from uh, Andre Kojeve. And I think his, you know, which, which has the whole end state Hegel reading plus some Nietzsche. That's where the last man's in there. Um, and you know, he, he is arguing that while Americans believe in God and national serenity in the military, which by the way, they don't anymore. Um, by that, I mean, religiosity amongst people under 45 is only 50%. I mean, that, I, I think people really have, when people talk about the rise of the Christian right, and it's usually like older liberal baby boomers and whatnot, I'm always like, you guys don't understand the youth culture at all today, or even what younger middle age culture, because it's not religious. Like you're still fighting the battles of the seventies and eighties um, today. Uh, and that's over. And the religious right is actually so vicious right now because it is, you know, dying basically. So in some ways, Fukuyama was even more right now than he was at the time he wrote the book. Um, that the whole, Oh, America bucks the trend of Europe and, and the developed parts of Asia and say secularization. That's not true anymore. We're now just on trend like the rest of the developed world. Um, so why do you think there's such pushback to these claims? I mean, I mean, I think the main reason that there's pushback is because as Fukuyama says, the end of history is not, is not a happy thing necessarily. Um, mm -hmm. it's the idea of the end of history is the coming about of a universal and homogenous state, uh, which is a state which is replicated in every country and across the world that is like unassailable and has answered the fundamental contradictions to human life, be they economic production or what he talks about a lot, which is the struggle for recognition and sort of this like metaphysical need to be seen as a person. Um, and he sees liberal democracy as having done that. The reason there's pushback is, uh, and he identifies in the book, it comes from two basically strains of thought about these things, uh, is either the contradictions haven't been resolved in terms of recognition or in terms of uh, economics. Um, and a lot of these are tied together. So he sees left critics of the book or the idea as saying, uh, you know, a capitalist order does not generate universal recognition because it implants uh, recognized inequalities that make no sense um, and impair the ability of man to see man properly. Or he talks about the challenge that comes from the right, which is that universal recognition actually goes too far 
And there's a need not only to be recognized, but to be recognized as superior and to be recognized in that way, in a way that's incompatible with liberal ideals of citizenship. Um, I think both, like both of these challenges are really potent and basically correct that these are things which liberalism does not address in its current form and continuing. And, but the question within the book and the thing we often discuss is, are these fundamental contradictions or are these just issues that for some reason won't bring liberalism down? Well, I think we need to be a little bit more, um, Uh, circumspect. Uh, I mean, I think you're right on these two tendencies, but we should break down like the right wing tendencies. There's been two that have really come up um, that are based off that critique that you just said right there. But one, then the most common one was made by people like Benjamin Barber in 1995, uh, Samuel Huntington over and over and over again, fellow neoconservative, but way more bellicose one. After 9-11, George Will and Fried Zakaria, one from the center left, one from the center right, talked about, you know, Islamicism and its need for, for particular recognition and supremacy and civilizational recognition being disproof of uh, Fukuyama thesis. What I find amazing and is, is, is that is under understood but is particularly true in the United States. I actually think there's a better argument against Fukuyama in Europe is that um, massive waves of Muslim immigrants to the United States through refugee programs have not, have not led to uh, the kinds of conditions that we see in say uh, Britain where our, our, our France, where there's like, like reticent Islamism um, as a real political force. I mean, not one that actually threatens to actually take power in any real sense of the word, but it's a significant minority force. Whereas in the United States, uh, even Somali immigrants are uh, a pretty solid progressive voting base, even if on, on particular moral issues, they may be personally quite conservative. Um, and I say that because that to me is a pretty strong indication of like the religious class of civilizations argument, just not being particularly true in the United States. Like there's a way in which you have can, can incorporate even, you know, it used to be said, well, most Muslim immigrants aren't poor, but I'm like, it's still true. Like look at Dearborn, Michigan. That's a bunch of Somali refugees. That's not, you I know, think for that reason, that argument is made much less frequently nowadays than it was in the early 2000s. Yeah, um, it was a big late 90s, early 2000s argument. It's kind of disappeared. And I find it interesting because because people kind of act like the book doesn't address this, but he actually talks about Islam in, in the end of history. He's like, well, you know, Fukuyama, in short, and in my very, very bastardized summary, says that doesn't really have an appeal outside of North Africa and so in the Gulf. He says for something to not be the end of history, this is an important distinction. It, it's something if to be a different alternate end of history, it has to be something that is universal and homogenous. 
And Islamism in his reading is not that because it is specific to a national uh, or civilizational um, ideal or, or region, uh, which is distinct from liberal democracy or, say, communism, um, which can be and, sh- you know, ideally is implanted everywhere and governs the entire world order. Um, and for this reason, you know, he, he kind of dismisses the uh, the clash of civilizations Islam argument. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I but wanted to bring that one up first because it was the most common one I remember when I was coming up, but it's also the easiest one to, to dispute. The yeah. other one that I think is interesting that is also based on the supremacy argument, but it's a different one, is that um, R- Russia and China are not part of this uh, democratic liberal polity order for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and that autocracy is increased. Our attempts at autocracy has, have increased even in the, the core. This argument started really getting uh, pushed by um, Azar Gat and Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan, yet another neoconservative, but he's he's not arguing for the class of civilizations. He's arguing that like um, that that uh, autocratic governments actually have a lot of appeal, and even in some cases, uh, higher citizenship satisfaction in the case of China than uh, than the West, broadly speaking. Um, now when that was first proposed in 2007, 2008, uh, Fukuyama actually responded to it and said, like, look, even Hu Jintao has to make concessions to democracy and so does Putin, even if it's an anti-democratic system, look at, you know, Medvedev, we always, we always forget about the Medvedev period, but Medvedev and and stuff like that, you know, he, he still, he, he, like even Putin still technically follows kind of liberal constitutionalism, even if it's just nominal. Um, now, uh, Fukuyama has walked that back a little bit in 2022, saying that he worries about uh, like Chinese and Russia becoming more mili- more militarist, particularly after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, um, and he, he, uh, he seems to think that the end of the end of history might be marked by, um, basically war. Um, but even that, what I find interesting about that is that he's not arguing that the nature of quote, the West or, you know, the, the democratic world would actually be significantly different. This just, it's no longer the only dominant world power. Yeah. I mean, I think he includes this in the idea of like clashes between the historical and the post-historical world. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these concerns revolve around the idea that the historical world is more, uh, more powerful and more potent than he previously expected. It's important to note that the book was written in 1992. 
with the original essay being written in 1989, which was 89. Yeah. Which was a a much more optimistic uh, time for the idea that China and Russia would, uh, would democratize and, or become liberal democracies. And I think that both countries have in certain ways, as you, you say, acceded to the international forms of liberal democracy, um, but without substantial internal reform marching headlong towards Fukuyama's prediction. Right. I mean, um, one, one of the one of the things we have to ask ourselves about China, like, for example, uh, the Chinese welfare state has been developed under Xi Jinping um, to some degree, as in, like, there's now national insurance and stuff like that again. Um, although it still remar- it still functions remarkably closer to the United States than it does to Europe. Yeah, it, um, China has the most comparable fiscal distribution between uh, the federal government and state or regional governments to the United States of any country. Right. I mean, it's, it was, it's one of these strange things where the post-Dengus world was a hyper-liberalization. It actually was a more deep deeper liberalizing move than happened in Europe or even the United States, which I don't think is well understood uh, by a lot of American leftists in particular. Like, I mean, but I even point out like they got rid of public schooling for women in the countryside. Like that's how far it went for a while. They did reverse that in the nineties. See, see, men. Uh, particularly Hu Jintao and now Xi Jinping have really pushed for a lot of reforms and developments of, of, you know, stronger state supports. But what we've also seen is uh, we, we have seen limits to the Chinese state capacity than a lot of like American leftists and Canadian leftists just do not want to look at and deal with. They don't seem to be like, there's a, there's clearly a business cycle in China. Now Um, the, while their growth rates have been better than the West, they've dropped precipitously over the last 20 years Um, until 2015 or 2016, it had a higher Gini coefficient than the West. That's no longer true. Um, because because of Xi Jinping's development of the rural areas, so you know, got to give credit where credit's due. But what I find interesting about this is China did economically liberalize in a lot of ways, um, but it didn't um, democratize significantly. Now, I also think the idea that China is totally uh, autocratic is not entirely true, particularly at the, at the state levels. Um, and there has been a lot of consolidation of centralized power as Mike Davis lamented in his last essay for uh, new left reviews blog. Um, but when people talk about China as an autocracy, it's kind of true that the party has an autocracy there. And it's kind of true that um, Xi Jinping has consolidated power within the party in a way we have not seen since Mao. Yeah. Um, but it's not true that it's, that it's this even an autocracy like Russia. Like, so I, I kind of see that. I mean, I, I see, I see the, the threat there. 
Well, he but, does have his explanation of, uh, which I just looked in the book, because um, he, he talks about Singapore, and I think this is also comparable to what he would say about China, um, is that he has the same objection to it that he has to the idea that Islamism would be a, a, a potent threat. He doesn't see this as a universal threat. And I think that this, this is one of the most interesting things, is that China's attempt at universalizing the China model have been dramatically pulled back in the last decade. Um, Belt Absolutely. And Road, it's not even part of the Belt and Road Initiative, and so much of that still exists. Yeah, Belt and Road is over. Um, there's no serious threat to existing multilateral institutions uh, from, from China. Um, in fact, the main you know, international power plays conducted by China and Russia are still within the UN. Um, the addition of China to the WTO is still relatively unassailable, and it's a useful thing for the Chinese government. Right, uh, and even even attempts to weaken dollar hem, uh, hegemony, which they are they are actively trying to do, has not led for them to try to replace the dollar with their own international order, despite what BRICS people want to project upon the world. Um, and there's also no consolidated, like when people talk about BRICS, for example, they ignore that India is far more politically, even though it's, you know, politically defending Russia right now, it's far more politically uh, aligned with U.S. foreign policy than Chinese foreign policy, like actively so. It's collaborating right now with Australia and Japan and the United States to move critical mineral production from, you know, from being exclusively in China to India and Australia uh, because they do not want Chinese international economic hegemony. Right. So, so, and when China has also, we tried to weaken the dollar. Sometimes it's allowed with, with yes, nearby trading partners of the, are like oil holding countries like Saudi Arabia to trade in Yuan. But often it's trading in things like fresh francs or, or other subsidiary currencies because also China does not want to uh, open its its international order to basically global capital to the sense that it would have to like float its currency and lose currency control and also become a more investor-friendly economy than it already is, which is already a lot more than you expect a communist country to be. Um, so there's real limitations there. And again, you know, the, the, the people who want to argue the picture on the left, actually, ironically, who want to argue that China is a real threat to the, to the West as the end of history and that it can basically fix all the problems on hand right now from, uh, from, uh, climate change to, to, uh, you know, dollar hegemony um i i basically think that that's a pure fantasy that has to be hidden under complete ideological language and not actually talk about what china's doing i I think part of this is that in the past um certainly like 40 years the dream of chinese foreign policy has been um more regional actors that are dominant over their region including China, including most of the the BRICS countries. This is the idea behind BRICS. Um, 
But what that does is that doesn't provide another end of history. It insists that history will continue, which is yeah, a it, different thing because it doesn't it doesn't offer final resolution. It doesn't offer a serious contestation of liberal democracy. It just says you have that over here. We don't have that here. Um, it's not universal. Which is why this is why I've seen like the the, the language of. 19th and early 20th century British geopolitical theory, a.k.a. the Polar's theories, which which I think people forget was picked up by Fukaria, but really became crucial to the kind of uh, Eurasianist tent in, um, in Russia, particularly for foreigners, for Alexander Dugan, but it's not the only place you find it, has been picked up by part of the Chinese policy establishment. And so they're like, people clearly tied to China using the same language, but it's not for the same reasons that uh, the Eurasian has promoted. There's no, like China would not benefit from a Eurasian union with Russia. It just benefits from Russia being able to resist Western hegemony. Um, and I don't, th- I don't think people really understand that uh, China's economy has been hurt pretty severely between uh, belt and road limitations and you and I are one of the only people just like, yeah, that's mostly over. They have finally, because it's over, they've finally been diplomatic for raise in places like Saudi Arabia to reach out and pull them into uh, a much more China friendly orbit. But there's no real attempt to like create a real competition to the, you know, to the, uh, you know, international Keynesian transatlantic quasi super state of of the global markets created when the United States took over the British Empire and then also integrated with continental Europe. Like there's only one NATO and there's only one World Bank. Right. And and China's not really, you know, I, I it's learned from these sovereign debt crises which are continually popping up in weak countries. Um and middle income countries that it can't actually really be the IMF and, and that it still has to play with the IMF to settle these debts, Um, that it can't eat all those losses. And this has become a, one thing that I think is not understood. And I've only gotten this from, I, you know, I don't read Mandarin, but I got this from people who do that. This is a pretty, pretty big debate that is not even that veiled within China itself, which means the PRC, uh, the, the CPC, really knows that it doesn't actually have a clear answer to this. If there, if there's so much debate going on on the topic, um, also in the case of like Russia, there's a there's a want to protect Russia from Western hegemony to protect it from NATO, but there's not a, like China has not benefited actually significantly, even as much as the Russians from this whole realignment strategy at all. And it's lost its ability to, say, try to separate Europe from the U.S. orbit. You know, Macron can say a couple of things when there's a riot in France uh, to try to, like, blame his problems on the United States, basically. But that doesn't really seem to hold power. And I, I think it would be good if if Europe was more independent. I even think it would be good for the United States if Europe was more independent. Um Economically, not so much for foreign policy, um, because uh, Europe would actually have to do a lot more of its own uh, defense development. 
um, which is a conservative talking point, but one that's not entirely wrong. I mean, the only real parts of Europe that really have strong defense development is France. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because France isn't totally willing to give up all of its African holdings, like, uh, which it doesn't technically have anymore, but they're still paying, you know, uh, I mean, they're still active in the Sahel. Right. Um, So, I mean, you know, French, French soldiers are constantly getting caught in Chad. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely something to, to, to see. So on that point, I think, uh, I think we just have to admit that like multi, the multipolar world is just saying, yeah, well, the history can stay ended in most of the planet. It's, we're just going to be a different managerial actor here in Asia. And I do think, for example, that like when we talk about multipolarity, it's clear that the United States no longer has the capacity politically or the ability to like be the sole person holding together the globalized open water trade. Mm-hmm. But it's also clear that nobody really wants to fully replace it, including it- China. I mean, in Fukuyama's reading, the end of history looks less like the U.S. also and more like the EU, um, which is which funny. I think it's wrong. But <laughs> it's just funny because the history seems more ended in the United States than it does in the EU, which includes some uh, some actors who would like history to resume. Uh, and I think that's because the EU is actually frankly, much more internally weak than I think most people realize. Like, particularly as Germany is not quite the production powerhouse that it's been for the past 20 years. Um, It's still pretty strong, but it's not as strong as it was. And we've seen the real limitations to EU energy policy, EU food policy. Uh, But we've also seen, like, you know, the money laundering capitals, like Britain, that, that... Britain was able to basically act like it had currency sovereignty because of its arrangement with the EU and act like it was still a productive economy, even though it really wasn't anymore Um, in a way that the U S still is. And so we've seen, we're, we're watching Britain try to like enact its end of history and things go to shit really fast. But what, what is fascinating is despite Although there's a lot of leftists who, who I think are absolutely batshit on a couple of things. Because I keep on hearing people say, well, why aren't we in the streets like in France? And I'm like, motherfuckers, we just were. Only three years ago. Also, the, the being in the streets in France didn't really do very much. Right. And neither did, frankly, the the BLM insurrections for, for Floyd. Um. The, the street stuff that that doesn't mean much. And I actually said that at the time. I'm like, the French the French people in the streets aren't winning. I think that also doesn't demonstrate conclusively that history hasn't ended. Like is you, to return it to, to Fukuyama, like he he's not suggesting that there's going to be no events or no public protest or no problems. He's suggesting that all of those things will be solved under the aegis of liberal democracy. Um, one of the things I think he's actually quite good on that that 
he doesn't deal with in this book, but has dealt with with uh, updates to it. And this is, uh, um, but also came out of two books he wrote in the aught that I actually, these are my favorite Fukuyama books, yeah. the origins, political order and political order and political decay. I think um, he's, he's always great on this stuff. Cause he's actually like pretty, he, he gets accused of being like so authoritative and being like, Nope, this is the way it's going, but he's incredibly flexible actually in what he says he means, which defends him. And his like proof of his overarching thesis in these two books you're talking about is, is a fantastic uh, series. I mean, well, one of the things is while I was complaining about all of his use of like, you know, identity recognition and ancient Greek stuff and all that in the end of history, which at points I find f- frankly annoying and yeah. lax. Um, he doesn't do in the origins of political order and uh, political order and political decay. Those two books really kind of are materialist history. Like, even though it's not Marxist materialist history, but like he's looking at like, well, why was the family ordered in this way? Why did social production, what weirdness that came out of these reforms in Europe through, uh, uh, through the reforms of, of institutions with the church led to this being so volatile and liberalism that couldn't, couldn't seem to happen in the Islamicate world or in, or in ancient China or whatever. And he's pretty good at at illustrating this and one of the things i think we can now talk about you know his flexibility here he has now a decadence thesis for the post for the post-historical world like he does think that there is that um political decay really is a problem of of post post post-historical liberalism um would you like to talk about that? And then we can go back to the book. Cause I think that to me, when people are like, Oh, he doesn't deal with this. I'm like, no, he himself criticized the book for not having a criticized uh, the, the end of history and the last man for not having a robust enough theory of political. K. Although I'm going to add it's in, it's hinted at by the last man part of the title, right? Like that Nietzsche component of it. He is kind of saying like, things are going to, things aren't, going to be as robust and there might be problems yeah i mean he he basically says like we can choose to resume history uh it as his decadence thesis um Mm -hmm. meaning not that we can do anything beyond liberal democracy in his reading but that we can slide back into a historical world uh of you know of of uh of conflict and excitement and horror um, if we choose to allow our political structures to deteriorate. Um, though he also insists that we're going to end up in the same place uh, at long last, um, that, you know, there might be a cyclical element to it, but that it doesn't, it doesn't change the end point. That second part, I think, is the part where I don't know that I follow him. Like... The, the the idea that we're all gonna that this is really gonna all end in something like uh the universal and homogenous state. Yeah, I just I don't I don't know that I actually believe that. Yeah. But I will say that like his uh I mean one of the things that he was worried about why he became more concessionary to things like Fordism and yeah, he's like democracy. a social democrat now, basically. right? is because he thinks that, like, capitalism's monopoly tendencies leads to, quote, corny capitalism, and that erodes 
internal competition and thus you have basically a, a government a, a government of hyper complexity it undermines the possibility of recognition right and i suppose this is this is my critique of him as he's right about this but wrong, like he's so concerned about recognition that he's not really looking at like the complexity of the order yeah um i think and, he, i think he's definitely oversimplistic a, a lot of the time um which is one reason he's so readable but also one reason why like if you actually look at most of his arguments you disagree with them until you get to the political theory and then you're like huh you know i guess um but that's like the the non-empirical portion of his arguments. Right. Well, I mean, I feel like his, that's why I found his history books, frankly, I still find them more convincing that his end of history books is like, I think how he explains how these societies developed their bureaucratic classes, how they ended up being important, including in the quote, liberal West, uh, what that meant for the liberal West when capitalism developed, et cetera, why it had an advantage. Um, I actually think he's really good on that stuff. It's the current stuff where he sees everything in terms of recognition, which I get does define. I mean, to, to go back to my, to, to me and your last thesis, he kind of just sees like the culture of narcissism and the politics of recognition for him. Like he would just be like, yeah, Lash is right, but it's like not bad. Yeah. Well, like, I don't know if he mentions Lash and all, which is like he doesn't, of, which is kind of funny things, because I think that uh, it's really fun to read the end of history next to the true only heaven because they have mm-hmm. such they're like published within a year of each other and they have such opposite conclusions about where the world is headed, um, you know, in or maybe maybe not because Lash doesn't really like argue that he just argue he says progress is is bad and that the developments that Fukuyama says are um, necessary and will continue are not in fact uh, intrinsic. Um, I do think, but I I do think, uh, yeah, basically Fukuyama says like, I don't know if he says the culture of narcissism is like good, uh, but I think he says that it's um, on. I didn't say he said it was good. I said it was, I think he says, I think he implies it's not bad. (laughs) Like, like, I think, which is a different thing. Yeah, I think he, he judges it to be morally neutral um, and also not to be a new development. Um, no. To be something intrinsic to the human experience and the human political experience. Right. Which which I think Lash would probably not see. And this is one of the problems I have with Lash's use of Freudianism, even though I find a lot of his arguments somewhat convincing about Fordism and the relationship to self and all this, uh, that there's a fundamental part of the ideological apparatus um, or ideological technology. I won't use apparatus because I don't want to sound like a Althusserian um, of liberalism is this self-recognition, but paired with self-responsibility. Like, and thus, and thus, like the quote, cult of the individual really emerges, right? Um, I, I think that is part of the ideological framework of liberalism. I don't think it's inherent to the liberal subject. I actually don't, I think it's a myth there too, but it is part of the justification. And following that, you know, the constant expansion of who counts and who doesn't count and liberalism 
and that that being the contested grounds, really. The contested grounds is who's included. Not like, you know, not uh, what should this be? And I find it interesting that like, I mentioned that I mentioned Michael Sandel in our last discussions, but I also think it's interesting here because what basically Sandel caused the, the, the shift from a um, democratic or uh, democratic republic, w- which has a civic republicanism and that's like a, uh, a necessary like identity and community base versus an administrative state, which Sandel doesn't because he's not, you know, always the most thorough person in political economy, even compared to Lash or Fukuyama, justify in political economy, but makes perfect sense, right? You like even from a political economic standpoint, the 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 development of huge corporations and the incorporations of multinationals meant that uh, political subjects needed to be more fungible and seen primarily as administrative. And there might be cultural politics, but that actually needs to not actually matter much. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess the big counter proof to that is, you know, the reversal Roe v. Wade's been the first time where that's actually really changed in the last uh, 40, 50 years. But, um, which is not to say it isn't important, but it, it's something to really consider. Um, I think there's an interesting coalescence coalescence of these three thinkers on this and i find it interesting that people like agree with sandel and they agree with a lot of people agree with lash but utterly reject fukuyama and i'm like but they're kind of they have different political conclusions to what this means to some degree i mean particularly lash uh sandel too because sandel really does not think in fact he thinks the current crisis mode of management is because the administrative state isn't isn't a good a viable enough way to build a society out of. Um, and so the, you know, now that, now that uh, the administrative state is not trusted, you have this like perpetual justification through crisis. That seems to be his current thesis. But um, if you were to like strip away the different ways in the different frameworks, these people are using to talk about it. Fukuyama's kind of, Political political theory, Hegelianism, lashes like Marxist, post-Marxist, uh, Freudian populism, and um, uh, Michael Sandel's communitarianism. Although he doesn't like no one who no one who's a communitarian listed as a communitarian actually likes to be called a communitarian. As a side note, um, someone's like, well, like, I guess uh, he cornered the market. Um, huh? Ed Zioni cornered the market. I was say, Ed Zioni and Slovmo Averni are the only two people I know who actually uh, like to be called communitarians. <laughs> so, uh, uh, anyway, um, but I think I think if we were to look at the theses of, of these three thinkers, Lash from the cultural history, Fukuyama and Sandel from uh, political. Political science, really political philosophy. Um, we we see that they're making parallel claims, and people read Fukuyama as more triumphalist than he is, and that's part of the problem. I think Danny Besner and pushing back on all the Fukuyama hate was like, 
you actually really haven't counted his argument. All these uh, all these emergent anti-liberal political theories that are coming from like national conservatism to uh, democratic socialism, which isn't that anti-liberal really either, but like to think it is sometimes um, to like Internet Stalinism. They don't actually have any effect on the actual running of these states hardly at all, even when they and in the case of like someone like Trump, even when they come into power. Like, so what does that say? Like, and, and, you know, Besner brings up Maloney, like Maloney has not really been that different from a center rightist in their relationship to the larger EU. And I've had a friend of mine who says, you know, you know, we might get the Le Pen win in, in France uh, because Macron is hanging on by, by threads and Melanchon is almost clearly not going to be powerful enough to, to fight Le Pen. Um, I have my, there's a lot of right-wing conspiracy theories like, oh, the EU will find a way to take her out before that. I'm like, I don't think so. But I I think you'll be surprised how, how I don't know that it's actually going to be what she's promising are the catastrophe that it's being spelled out to be. It might be. Like, if it happened in enough places at once, it could be. Like, what Fukuyama talks about, you know, we could return to history if enough, within this area, if enough people you know, wanted it to go that way or if political decay got bad enough. Um, if so, if you had like a DeSantis win and uh, uh, a Le Pen win and um, yeah, I don't know, the ADF came into yeah. power into Germany, which I can't imagine actually as bad as things are for the SP day right now. Um, then maybe, but you know, even things like Adragon and a lot of these sort of like outsider populist, you know, uh, civilizationalist projects have kind of fallen apart. Like Adragon's, Adragon's holding the power by the skin of his teeth, basically because there aren't. But like his project, what is it even now? Like it's not clear at all. Um. So I guess I guess we should you know, talk about what we think the implications are for leftists. Um, So, I mean, I I think that, uh, I think that one of the implications from all of these thinkers that I think about is I do think it's necessary to address recognition uh, and including um, the idea that some people want to be recognized more highly than others. Uh, if you're going to present a compelling leftist politics in the Western world or in the uh, post-historical world, let's say. Um, Because I think that uh, the most compelling challenges to liberalism thus far have been organized on that basis, not the traditional basis of saying liberalism affords insufficient recognition to everyone. Um. I don't know what that what that entails because I certainly don't think it should entail a uh, acceptance of power inequalities and a naturalization of hierarchy in the way it does for much of the right. But I do think it means that you have to start taking seriously the idea that um, people want to 
to dominate others in some way. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think that's true in the current social order too. It's now just ha- it just happens through basically nepotistic ends. Yeah, and I mean you know it's and there's there's different I, the current social order is proof that the modes of domination can shift in ways that are more that are preferable. Like I think that the mode of domination through contracts is certainly preferable to the mode of domination through like feudal power. Right. right. You're not a Foucauldian who thinks the king should just gut people. And yeah, that's, that's really bad. Like that, that would be awful. That'd be terrible. Um, but, you know, and I, I think that this is one of the things which speaks to me about Lash uh, so much also is that uh, there's a real sense that there's a need for people to, to self-actualize and to gain meaning and to impose uh, as a collective mass, new forms of meaning onto the political scene. Um, the other thing I would think I would push back to is not just on the superiority of, of certain kind of like domination, both in group and individual having to be accounted for. Um, I would also say human collectivity um, not in collectivism. You, you know that I also think that's, that's just a bad idea. Like collectivism is just a nonsense idea. Um, but like that people's atomized alienation really is bad for them. Like in a psychological way, in a social way. Um, and while people complain about how lonely they are under liberal conditions, they also exacerbate those problems themselves. Like, you know, it, it's also a matter of personal habit in a lot of ways, as much as social ones. And I, I don't like the left that they refuse to talk about the personal habit and personal discipline of all this. Um, but I do think that's something we have to deal with. Like, I, you know, when people talk about talk to me about what communica- communitarianism is about the fading of the proletariat and the proletariat's really back, but even in periphery. And I'm like, I always push back on that. I'm like, one, it's just doesn't seem to be true that there's a large proletariat that's super politically active in the developed world when you're having more and more developed world just pushed out of both agrarian and manufacturing labor. There's just more and more people who don't have jobs at all. Um, There's a mass untethering of social boundaries and social uh, connections, which Mm -hmm. is considerably worse for the proletariat than it is for wealthy people. Right, and it's considerably worse in the developed world. I mean, in the developing world than the developed world too. Um, that's why concepts like the global precariat and stuff aren't totally insane, even though they're just ways of renaming stuff that we already have concepts for. Um, I think that's fair, right? But I, I, I do think that like there's a reason why even in these quote communities with active proletariat you know, that people talk about, like, but they don't organize themselves as communists most of the time. I'm sorry. There's no evidence for that. They organize themselves as like religious movements and, and, uh, um, social movements and, and, uh, you know, what might be called a Danitarian movements, both in the right and the left. Um, Although there's a lot of left wing liberals who don't like using the word Darren that thinks that makes you a right winger because fuck those guys are stupid. But um, um, I I do think that 
you you have to ask themselves like okay well even if it's a proletarian movement why doesn't it ever see itself like that that's not its self conception in most it instances. selects different forms of recognition of mutual right. recognition um i think and i think one reason is that uh selecting oneself in terms of religious identification is a more egalitarian form of recognition than looking at one another as proletariat is typically because it assumes the possibility of universality in a way that, you know, is not true of class identification, um, except for, you know, the, the older ideal of a, a universal class, which would not be the proletariat. It would be, uh, you know, the intellectual class, the bourgeoisie, whatever, like, um, and it attempts to wish away class antagonisms. So right. I don't think that's a particularly effective form of class universalization, but the dream of socialism is the elimination of class as a category altogether. Um, would you say, I mean, you'd say that's true, right? Yeah. Although now you sound like an ultra leftist. I'm, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just saying that like, that's not something which when you're thinking in those terms leads to permanent, a permanent sense of recognition. It's a very, te- it's a, ideally temporary sense of recognition. So this is, this is the problem that I've always had with like the class consciousness idea. All right. Um, for, and this is something that actually, uh, Giles Duvet, I think it's how you say his name. I mispronounce it every time. Actually, I think has a point on, even though I disagree with almost everything he says in the, in most of his books. Um, is that there's a fundamental paradox in calling for a recognition of the working class while also calling for its abolition in a way that no one has really squared. Um, and I think, like, for example, if you look at, like, say, Allende's Chile or the communist movement and a communist movement in, like, Latin America or when there's pink waves or whatever, there's a reason why you'll see both an appeal to the dignity of workers but also appeals to like the solidarity of Christians or the mm-hmm. solidarity of some national group or, or like the recognition of indigenous rights against the Criollo or whatever. Like it looks different than it does in North American quote PMC politics, but it's not fundamentally different, which, which to me leads to an interesting point is I'm like, okay, part of the problem with class politics is is that if you try to present a unified class, you have to like hide the divisions within the class itself, which itself causes all kinds of problems. Um, so if we talk about like the working class, there's this constant push and pull and quote class politics in America to both shrink and expand the working class constantly, depending on what what one's annoyed by in a particular instance. Like um do you take the wage dependent view or do you take the productivity view or whatever? And you see this in these debates. Um, And one of the things I point out is sometimes both views actually render classes and identity in this way of which you just want to recognize, but most people don't want to be recognized as their class. That's the one thing they don't want to be recognized for. Like, and that's Pierre Badu is good on this. Well, that's also something that Lash talks about in his like last books is the idea that what made American democracy unique originally was that it did not tie recognition, social recognition to class position, um, you know, which is like not necessarily accurate. Um, it just reflects like fundamentally not accurate. 
It's fundamentally not accurate, but it does it does reflect uh, you know the dream of citizenship um, as dis- as something which is in, in integral to your your personhood, not uh, not an effect of your relation to the world around you. Um, ideally, which is you know is is different. You don't want to be necessarily recognized always as the things you do. You want to be recognized sometimes as the things that you are. Um, though both are, you know, part of who you are. Yeah, I think that um, I think that's something that like Marxists and stuff have tried have tried unsuccessfully to deal with. Um, and I say this is a person who believes in class solidarity and class autonomy and class politics, but like, even if you look at like the debates about what, what actually counts as a class political movement, you look at like the Dylan Riley, Robin Brenner, seven thesis piece in, in new left review and what they're like, well, the new left isn't, I mean, the new left isn't uh class politics, but neither was the new deal, but the civil rights movement is, uh, and I'm like, okay. Uh, some of that to me, I think is them trying to get out of some, I think it's trying to get them get out of current political problems by, you know, making claims about the past. But in some way I have thought about it. Cause Lash actually does make the similar argument. Not that, that the civil rights movement is a successful populist movement, but, and also broadly speaking, benefited all of the working class, not just the black working class. Um, and so much of the civil rights movement was successful and, we have to say, you know, seven, 60, 70 years out, as success is limited. Um, although it wasn't completely unsuccessful either, it's probably the most successful left wing, left liberal political movement in 150 years. Um, I think we have to ask ourselves, like, why does class politics, when it exists, often not present itself as class politics? Like, because that, that is a pushback on the kind of Lukashian, you know, class of itself and for itself uh, way of thinking, because I just don't, I can't find a whole lot of history where that's actually been the way either the working class or socialists have actually organized. Like they claimed that they organized that way, but that's not what they actually did. Um, and then when you look at like socialist movements that were successful in Latin America or Europe, they also don't really organize along those lines. So it's like, you know, um, they might talk about dignity for workers, um, workers rights and all this, but they don't generally flame it solely in terms of the class itself. So you have this paradox, right. That I think kind of comes up. And one of the reasons why class politics hasn't been a good answer to, to Fukuyama's recognition problem is as the proletariat or as we won't deal with the contestations of what proletariat means. I'm going to use the term uh, as the wage earning class expands that way. No one can come at me. Um, The divisions within that class and the recognitions within that class are more important to people's daily lives than the fact that they're wage earners. And that plays itself out in obvious ways of gender and race, but in a lot of unobvious ways too. Regional tension, sectoral tension, stuff like that, where like 
you know, worker politics, for example, will reflect the dominant industry's interest in their area, not like independent class politics. And why is that? All right. Well, I think some of that's some of that's frankly the if you're in uh, capitalist sectors that are besieged, it actually issues as a worker to protect your job by hoping it does well. But there's also a sense in which, like, there are local regional identities and stuff that you're not going to get rid of. And, you know, I think this is why, like, the Marxist answer to the national problem has never, ever, ever made sense. Yeah, it's never satisfactory, which is why series on it. Yeah. And, and well, and and we keep on pointing out to most of the successful theories of it aren't completely speaking formally Marxist. <laughs> like, um, they might have Marxist origins, but they don't have Marxist implications, right? Um, and it's also why stuff like uh, Harun Yelnaz's book about yeah, you know, um, the Soviets really spread nationalism as a way to like modernize, you know, uh, p- subject peoples of the Russian Empire. But they kind of thought that that nationalism would just go away the way it has done. And like it actually kind of has done to some small degree in the developed West amongst the, the better off peoples. Like, you know, not all of the United States, but the well off of the United States kind of have a cosmopolitan ethos. Why, you know, but that doesn't happen in like, I don't know, Tuva. Um, and so. And so what to make of that, you know, it, it does seem to indicate that like there there's something that that doesn't understand. And I do think the politics of recognition is important to deal with, which means for me, for a successful, you know, like I'm a I like I said, I believe in class autonomy, I believe in class solidarity, I may even believe in class unity, but that also means that I'm gonna have to recognize people in ways that are not just about their class position to get them on board with my politics. And if you can't do that, I think your politics is doomed. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and to turn it back to both the Fukuyama end of his three thesis, but also a little bit about like, you know, our discussion about the crisis of liberalism and why the center seems to hold, even though there aren't really even centrist anymore. And I think a lot of it has to do with this. Like the center does have a way of like recognizing people and then dispatching with that and not fundamentally changing anything. You know, like if we look at what happened, we had, well, I mentioned a little while earlier, like the, 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 the Floyd riots. Well, what happened with the Floyd riots slash insurrections? We see you, we hear you and we stand with you. And then we do nothing. And then we do nothing. It's, you know, I, I will say uh, my right wing and left wing swarms are like, well, that's the perfect stance for mental management to take because they don't have to change anything, but they can, but it will expand their controlling power. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Um, absolutely. But you have to ask yourself, like, why does this has happened in this way? Even in the case of like the French working class, I don't think they're appealing to the universal working class. Mm-hmm. I think they're appealing to their Frenchness. Like we have these rights as fresh citizens and you, and you are messing with them, Macron, you know? And I do think that's something we have to ask ourselves about the way people view identity in this 
scenario. Like I, I've even, you know, I've talked to people in class unity and a lot of them like, yeah, well, you know, nations exist. And I'm like, okay, so how is national competition really about class unity? Doesn't, isn't that like limitedly methodologically nationalist? And then like, I get a bunch of like, uh, and I'm like, okay, but so let's talk about why you feel that way. What is actually going on there? Some of it's, you know, there might be all kinds of reasons, and I don't think all of it's bigotry either. So what what is going on there? And I officially kind of think that a whole lot of the left, when it's like, oh, we aren't liberal, you know, yes, you are. Because you 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 think that just acknowledging, you know, things will be enough. And because we recognize you as an equal and a clear way that that's enough to make you homo economicus and also completely rational and like systems of domination that aren't about exploitation aren't in play. And I think that's just not true. Like um, human competition is a little bit deeper than that, frankly. Um, but I guess maybe my, my, uh, I guess my one counter pull would be so is the tendency towards human equality, which is also pretty deep. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to give you the, you know, we've been bobbling on for an hour. I'm going to give you the, uh, the last little bit. What, where do you think people should go in their response to Fukuyama beyond these things that we've talked about? Um, I think that the, I think that what matters more than, than just what Fukuyama says is what he's responding to, which is what we've talked about a lot over the last couple of sessions. And that's the fact that liberalism is simultaneously dominant and in crisis. Uh, And I think that people should really reckon with why those two things are simultaneously true. Um, See why liberalism is dominant. What is the good in liberalism? Not just why is it dominating, but why has it proved to be a compelling answer to a lot of problems over the past, you know, however many centuries? Um, Because I think there's a lot of focus on the left in the crisis portion, but not enough focus on the dominance side, uh, besides to to claim that it's it's purely power. Um, You know, it's hard to know what to do from here. Uh, if we do live in the end of history, then it dramatically curtails the sphere of what is possible. Um, at the same time, if we don't live in the end of history, then it just means you have to be more compelling and harder working and dream bigger and work harder. Uh, and I think all of those things are possible and all of those things can be done. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good answer. I, I think we need to do better about thinking through what is and is not liberal. That's and, true. And then these other, these sub problems, like let's talk about human domination, not just exploitation, because I, I do think we're, there's a whole lot of the left that doesn't want to deal with it. Conversely, there's a whole lot of the left people often called shit libs or whatever, or rad libs or whatever you, whatever the insult they juror of the week is that only focus on domination and don't look at exploitation at all. Definitely. Um, uh, 
and that division really has meant that like yeah, a lot of the liberal technocrats they they can dominate us with recognition games but those of us who think oh well we just need class solidarity you know our our class unity or whatever and i'm like well we do need that absolutely i want you to prove to me though that that's ever gone under that name because i don't know that it has and and we do have to recognize that like one of the reasons why the religious calls actually seem to be effective even in secular societies is they they are truly speaking utopian in a way that a lot of what we offer is not um but that's my my takeaway um i would tell people before you say fukuyama's wrong actually read his book that's true too like um he might be wrong I suspect that in the long run, he is wrong. But in the short run, so far, it's held. You know, and, and, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. The fact that I completely disagree with most of the arguments in the first half of the book, The End of History. Oh, yeah. That, that first part of that book is bad. It's we, not talking about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, the center holds, apparently. Don't yeah. know how, but it does. Yep. Yeah. I've actually, you know, my big thesis is uh, in 2018 was like the, the, the center will survive because everything else is in such chaos that it's the only thing that actually has power. And I still kind of hold by that, but it does seem kind of amazing that nothing, that even when the alternatives come to power or have a chance at power, they don't even really do anything about it. Like that's the more surprising thing. Um, and on that note, and on that cheery, happy note, we will end. Thank you for supporting Varnblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video and other perks such as access to our archives etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer Paul Channel Strip and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.